Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. I hope you kept your place in the book of Philippians. Chapter 3, we'll be looking at that passage of Scripture to some degree this morning. Anna Katharina Schaffner, a woman who holds a doctorate in psychology, has written a book, The Art of Self-Improvement. She was enlisted by Psychology Today magazine to write an article, and the gist of it was to list 12 of what she believes are the better books on the matter of self-improvement. I looked at the list. Some of the books I was familiar with, others were completely new to me. I had read three of the books, one by Dale Carnegie, you know it, right? How to Win Friends and Influence People. Another one, Thoreau's On Walden Pond, The Transcendentalist. I was required to read that when I was a junior in high school in the English class that I was a part of, Thoreau, who escaped all the difficulties of the world by just going back to nature. And he was a naturalist and a transcendentalist at the same time, of course. And then another book, that I read was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Of those three books, that's probably the best of the three that I have read. Other books were there. One by Marcus Aurelius topped the list, his meditations. He was the fifth of the five good emperors of the Roman Empire. He died in 180. He was not by any means a perfect man. His approach to understanding life would be simply described as stoic Stoicism, and to simplify what he would advocate for self-improvement is just to lower your expectations. Well, that's kind of a negative approach, isn't it, to self-improvement? There's one line in the article that Miss Schaffner wrote that stood out to me, really captured everything she had to say, I believe. She said, the wish for self-improvement is a timeless desire. She went so back, far as to go back into the 4th century B.C. to Lao Tzu, a Chinese philosopher. He was one who is tied to Taoism, and it's a whole different way of looking at the whole matter of self-improvement. All these writers have their ideas. Some of them overlap. But what's interesting is I read her list there was only one, maybe two, if you stretch hard, that had any reference or any connection to that which would be biblical. Dante's Divine Comedy she used as an example. Maybe that was her tipping her hat to part of the audience who would read her book or read the article who might have a Christian basis for living. That was one that she mentioned in that setting. What I'd like to ask her, if I had an opportunity, I would say, Dr. Schaffner, you are more highly educated than I. Undoubtedly, you are well-researched in your field. Why wouldn't you make mention of the Bible? And I'm sure I would get some sort of offhand answer. I think she didn't mention it because it would really diminish her readership rather quickly at the very suggestion that an intellectual, someone who thinks, not just her, I'm not taking a pot shot at her necessarily, but people who think, really thinking people don't read the Bible. That's the current view of the intellectual elite in our day and probably has been since the Enlightenment began back in the 18th century. No mention of the Bible, of course. My mind began to wander and hopefully it was led by the Spirit of God as I was preparing this message to some of the great figures in history, not people that we would call necessarily preacher types 
or even prophets, but people who had normal kinds of lives, but because they were Christians, they had what I would call extraordinary life. And the one that I landed on, I thought of very many, but I'm only going to mention one in the interest of time, is George Washington Carver. Born a slave, received his freedom with the Civil War's conclusion. And this man, who was from Alabama, he found himself at Tuskegee Institute, which was strictly an African-American institute at that time, a great institute of learning. He was a man who was a scientist, and he spent the vast majority of his career dealing with the peanut. He found over 300 useful ways to employ the peanut. His notoriety grew. His fame spread. The Ways and Means Committee of the United States House of Representatives invited him to come to tell about his work with the peanut. He was told in advance by the person who did the calendaring this. He said, Mr. Carver, you will have 10 minutes. So please come prepared and don't be insulted when the chairman cuts you off after 10 minutes. Carver, who was a very humble man, said, thank you, I'm happy for the opportunity. I will be there, I will be prepared, and when my time is up, I will graciously bow out. He sat in front of this prestigious group of legislators in our country at that time, and what was supposed to be 10 minutes became an hour and 45 minutes. To those who made up the committee, it seemed like maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And when he had finished his presentation, the chairman of the House and Ways Committee said to him, Mr. Carver, where did you learn so much about the peanut? He said, in an old book. And the chairman said, what would that book's name be? He said, the Bible. The chairman retorted by saying, I didn't know the Bible had anything to say about peanuts. And he said, sir, as far as I know, you're correct. However, it has a lot to say about God, and God created the peanut. And as I do my work in God's little laboratory at Tuskegee Institute, I have asked God, show me, God, things I need to know about the peanut in order that I can be more useful to you and to mankind. Here was a brilliant mind who understood the person of God as being interested in us and being the one who has all information about any number of subjects. You cannot go wrong by going to Him and being a student of the Bible so that you can get to know Him. Is self-improvement something that's legitimate for us as followers of Jesus Christ? I'm not throwing a trick question out for you. The Bible is very clear in the book of Romans, for instance. There are many other places I could go. I'm only going to mention three statements that are made. They're quotations actually from the Old Testament, as we call it, in the third chapter of Romans. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who is good. That's rather a bleak picture, isn't it, of mankind? But one of the things I love about God's Word is it does not varnish anything. It does not whitewash anything. It is the truth. And as Jesus says, if you abide in my words and my word abides in you, you're going to be a person who knows the truth and the truth will set you free. The gospel is a combination of bad news and good news, isn't it? Overall, the word gospel itself, surely you know, means good news. But what we have to understand is 
that there has to be some bad news dealt with first before we can get to the good news of the gospel in its finest form. So, that having been said, we need to understand that God wants us to have a goal. We're going to look at what that goal is today. And all other goals, if they are worthwhile, are under this goal as a heading. So look at Philippians, rather, verse 3. And we're going to begin with verse 3. And I'm going to do a running commentary on this as we work our way through it. Not dealing with every intricacy, but dealing with the general ideas here. Verse 3, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I want to pause, and I don't want to insult anyone. Many of you know more than I do about the whole concept of the flesh biblically. But I'm going to give you a simple working definition that I have shared before regarding the flesh. It is this. The flesh is my personality or your personality outside the regenerating and controlling influence of the Holy Spirit of God. It's man left to his own devices. It's fallen man. Paul the Apostle was as religious as the day was long. You could not find anyone more religious than the Apostle Paul. And let's see how he describes his pre-Christian life. Prior to meeting Christ, in verse 5, he says, and he's already said, I have reason to boast in my putting my confidence in myself, is what he's saying. I have much reason. In fact, I have more reason to boast than anyone in my era. Look at verse 5. Circumcise the eighth day. He's indicating his pedigree. His parents were faithful to the law. And on the eighth day, according to the law of Moses, they took him to a priest. He was circumcised. Maybe even in Jerusalem, as far as we know of the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God. Not only was I the child of parents who were adherents to the law, but I was a descendant of none other than Israel, Jacob, who was a descendant of Isaac, who was a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He took pride in his tribe. The first king, Saul, came from Benjamin. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, he's spread out a little bit. This is what he's doing now. He do, he's doing what we do in the flesh. We compare ourselves with other people. And we try to find some people or some group of people to whom we are superior. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. This means he was a scholar. He had studied at the feet we learn in Acts chapter 22 of the great Rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem. His father had seen to it that he have that excellent education. It would be the equivalent today of an Ivy League education in the United States. He goes on to say, as to the law of Pharisee, we know that the Pharisees were laymen. There were approximately 6,000 of them in Paul's day. These laymen earned their living with their hands. They were the most highly regarded sect of Jews in all of Judaism. And he was a keeper of the law. Not just the law of Moses, mind you, but all the extra traditions that had been heaped on. Layer and layer of traditions from the famous rabbis probably mainly from the intertestamental period between the closing of the Old Testament canon in the 4th century B.C. with Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist. All those many erudite, learned rabbis and how they would 
expound upon, write commentaries, if you would, on the law of Moses. Look at verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. When Paul was converted, he held in his hand a warrant for the arrest of any former Jew or Jew who had defected to Christ as the Messiah. As he was on his way to Damascus, what happened? He was encountered by the Lord and he was saved on his way there remarkably. And he was a persecutor of the church. He may have even killed people. At least he gave consent to the death of Stephen as he was stoned shortly after the ascension of Christ. He talks about the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. In other words, he was blameless. Now that's a lot to boast about, isn't it? But he changed. A better way of saying is, he was changed. He was changed, changed irrevocably. Irrevocably means there could never be a going back for him. Christ changed him in fulfillment of the prophecy regarding the new covenant that was given to Israel through Ezekiel, where God says, I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you, and I will move you to do what I want you to do by that same spirit. Verse 7, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, all those things that were fleshly, all those efforts to make himself right and to puff him up, to give him a sense of significance that was intolerable. I think the Apostle Paul would have been the worst person in Israel to be around. Worse than the worst criminal. And he was just eaten up with his own person, his own flesh his own accomplishments. He counted all that loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8 says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. May I jump ahead just a little bit here? This is the key goal for Paul. And it's the key goal for anyone who wants to be improved. And if you haven't figured it out by now, self is beyond being improved. It will never be improvable. The reason being is because it is anti-God. It is the idea that I can be a God. It's really what it comes to. It extends all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Satan, who himself had staged an incredible rebellion, Satan who was a beautiful angel, a pure angel, but he decided to usurp God's authority, tried to get him off the throne, led a rebellion, and he was not satisfied after having been kicked out of heaven, as it were. He was not satisfied to leave God's creation of Adam and Eve alone because they bore the image of God and he hates God, the devil does. And when he appealed to them, he said, if you will eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. And what did Adam and Eve do? They resisted it a while, but not a real heavy resistance. What did they do? They took the bait, didn't they? And they fell into sin. According to the book of Romans 5.12, sin entered the world through one man, and who would that man be? Adam. And through sin, death. And so death has engulfed humanity. It's not simply talking about physical death. That's the end game of sin. The wages of sin is death. That's the end game. People die. And they die because of sin. There's not a person who has escaped this life 
without dying in his or her sin. Even Christ died a sinner. Do you know that? On the cross, he became sin on our behalf. God made him sin in order that we could be made right with God. So please be sure you understand this. You will never improve yourself on your own. We're going to get to that in a little bit. You'll come to the place of learning what the one goal, the overarching goal is, God has for us, is to know Christ. And if we know Christ, what does that open a door for in our lives? Jesus says, if you have known me, you know the Father also. In John chapter 14, he talks about that. Now let's move on down. Verse 8, in the middle, for whom, that's talking about Jesus, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. All my degrees, all my plaudits, all the trophies I've won, all the applause I've received. He says, it's just a dung heap is what he goes on to say in verse 9. In order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Paul was righteous. He was not righteous before he received Christ. He thought he was. He was striving after it. And if you're here today and you think you've got to get more good deeds done in your life than the bad and hope at the end you will have accumulated enough points to get into heaven, forget it. All we have to offer to the Lord is ourselves in surrender and say, Lord, I need you. I can't save myself. I know that, Lord. Thank you for revealing it to me in your word. And he goes on to say here in verse 9, but that which is through faith in Christ, do you know where our righteousness comes? Therefore, having been justified by faith, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, that I may know Him, here He goes again, and the power of His resurrection, the life of Christ. The Bible says in Romans chapter 4, in the closing remark, said we are justified by the resurrection of Christ. Yeah, we're made right with God by the work of Christ on the cross, but it's incomplete without the resurrection because in Romans 5 again, the Scripture says we are now being saved by His life. And where does that life reside? In you and me, if we know Jesus Christ. This is the Gospel. Isn't it wonderful? We don't have to rely on ourselves. We don't have to worry about self-improvement in the world's way of looking at it. The improvement comes in our growing in, our, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The closing remark by Peter in 2 Peter 3. Keep on growing is what it says in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful right there. I wish we had time to delve into that more deeply. But we can keep on growing. We're made to keep on growing. I would suggest to you that I and you throughout history and into eternity have the capacity to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The power of the resurrection, the person of Christ indwells us and the fellowship of His sufferings. Look, because this world is antagonistic toward God and Christ, Due to His presence in your life, if you give your life to Christ, you're going to have antagonism from the devil and the world. And we should not go hunting for someone to persecute us, but what we are to do is follow Christ. And if we follow Christ, we're going to have suffering in our lives. It's a given. The devil is all about trying to discourage us, derail us, keep us, from walking in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the whole of, all of this is so that we can be conformed to His death, the death of Christ. Be like Jesus in His death. We die to ourselves. We say no to ourselves in order that we might say yes to God. In verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12 now. 
says, not that I have already obtained it. Here's Paul, 60 years old or more by this time. He's in prison, first imprisonment in Rome, early 60s probably. Not that I've already obtained it. He'd been at this probably for three decades. Or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid a hold of by Christ Jesus. And that would be to know Christ and to make Christ known. 13, brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. Do you see the modesty here in his life? A lot of people give Paul a bad rap. They say he's just full of egotism. How does he get off telling people what to do? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, he imitated Christ. And he was given that assignment to call others to follow Jesus too. And he said, I am going to, by God's grace, help you to grow in the Lord. Aren't you glad he did? We have 13 of the 27 so-called books in the New Testament which came from his pen. And we get other insights from him in the book of Acts. Let's look at verse 14. This is the climactic verse. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. He says in 13, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, but one thing I do. That sounds like a, a, an overarching goal of life, right? And as we enter 2022, look, what I'm asking you to do, I've never given this message before. I've done, I counted 45 messages on New Year's. I've been in, the, in this role so many years, not in this church, but elsewhere in this church. But one thing I do, this applies to all of you. You want to have a great new year in the best sense of the word going forward? Then you need to pay careful attention to what Paul says. He wants to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. And what He does, He forgets what's behind. This is the beauty. We know that the Roman God of the new year had two faces, right? Janus, is that the name of that God? I just came to my mind. I think it is. Janus, and Janus looked both ways, didn't he? back and forward. Well, God says, but one thing through Paul and for us, but one thing we're to do is forget what's behind. Now, if you've got unconfessed sin behind, get rid of it. Confess it. Repent of it. It's a good time to turn over that chapter of your life. Get right with God. But we can't do anything about what happened in the past, can we? It's gone. We need to learn now and look forward and have as our goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So here we have it. We need to understand that the means, I'm going to talk in the closing moments, and we have some things, I don't think Sylvia's in here now. Is Sylvia in here? Okay, Travis, put these verses up on the screen. There's a series of verses I'm going to allude to. Put them all up, if you will. One at a time is okay, Travis. Okay, we're going to look at these, and I'm going to talk about them, and there is a tie that links these together. I'm going to begin with 2 Corinthians 5.9. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.9, it says, we make it our goal to please Him. The word please is the same word, or at least from the same family of words that is used elsewhere in fact, in Hebrews 11.6. Here's the second. Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6 says this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, if I'm with Paul and you're with Paul and we make it our goal to please Him, then how are we going to please Him? We please Him by faith. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the Word of God. The only way you and I will grow in faith is to put ourselves in a position to hear God speak to us through the Bible. We open the Word of God, God 
speaks to us. Perhaps my favorite little vignette in the New Testament, apart from the nativity scene and the cross, is found in Luke chapter 10, where a couple of sisters host Jesus and his men, and the younger sister is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening, the Bible says, and many of the translations don't translate it, the whole statement really. It says, listening to Jesus' word. She was listening to the word, and it's the word logos, which means the whole word of God. Jesus was giving the word of God. He was, she was listening to Christ. Her sister was upset, scolded him for not making her go into the kitchen and help the older sister Martha and then what does Jesus say Martha Martha and the way he spoke to her was gentle he didn't jump on her he was gentle Martha Martha you were bothered and worried about many things your sister has found that which is necessary what was it the only thing he went on to say this is important listen She's found that which is necessary. It's the only thing that will not be taken away from her. I have intentions of watching the Cowboys play this afternoon at 2.35. And I'll be rooting for them to beat the Cardinals today. But you know, a Super Bowl victory for the Cowboys, for me as one of millions of fans, is not going to be taken into eternity. The only thing that's going to be taken into eternity are those things that are built on the person, the work of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. This is the basis, my friend. If you want your life to matter going forward, whether this is July the 30th or today, January the 2nd, it doesn't matter. Today is the day of our salvation in the sense it's a new start for us where we can learn what the Scripture says and we can apply what the Scripture says. You want your life to count for eternity? Then start doing what this passage teaches us. We're to be men and women who listen to the Word of God like Mary did at the feet of Jesus. And Romans 14, 23 says, Whatever is not of faith, is sin. Did you know the bottom line of sin is a lack of faith? Faith comes from hearing. Trusting is what that means. Depending upon. In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And verse 8 says, in that same, it's not up there, but verse 8 of John 15 says this, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I know some of you said, hey, he missed it. The real goal is that we glorify God. We have no capacity to glorify God until we know God. Once we know God, we will glorify God. And in order for us to glorify God, we have to be men and women who abide in Christ. And what does that amount to? It's a picture, obviously, from horticulture, a branch of a grapevine into the vine, and from the vine comes the life of the vine, and therefore life is produced through that vine. So what this means is that we, like a branch in a vine, as we rest in Christ, we depend upon Him, we're depending on Him, to give us what we need to bear fruit that may, remains. And by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. For apart from me, how much can you and I do apart from Jesus Christ? Nothing. If you don't know Jesus, forget trying to get right with God. You don't, you're never going to be right with and you'll never be used. You'll never fulfill your purpose. You were created to glorify Him. You were created the second time to continue to glorify Him, to do the works which were prepared in advance for you to do when you were thought of by God. And we are men and women who have this incredible opportunity to know Christ and to be men and women who abide in Christ 
Jesus himself in John 5, 19, I'm not going to quote them verbatim, John 8, 28, Jesus talks about how he didn't do anything at all. Do you believe what Jesus says in the Bible? He said, I can't do anything apart from God. And then he goes on to say in Romans, I mean, excuse me, John 8, 28, he said, I can't even say anything. And I don't say anything except what I hear the Father say. He speaks, I communicate. He speaks, I communicate. Now, Jesus is God, was God, always will be God. No doubt about that. But the point is that in His humanity to totally identify with us, He did not divest Himself of His deity, but He put it on hold in order that He might understand what it's like to be fully human without sin. So, Isaiah 43.7, I've already alluded to that. What does it say? It says that God created us to glorify Him. Let's look now at a couple of figures in the Bible. A negative figure, someone who thought he could handle it by himself. Paul in his pre-conversion state was such a person. But in some way, his counterpart within the apostolic group, Peter, whose mission was primarily to the descendants of Abraham. Remember the conversation that Jesus had with Peter and the other apostles after Judas had gone to betray him? And Jesus looked at them, he searched, he looked at all of them and he said it repeatedly. Actually, we know by the language he used, he used uh, an imperfect tense verb, which means he said it over and over again. And he said to all of them, he said this. He said, Satan, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has gained permission to sift you like wheat. And the you is plural, not just Peter. And then what does Peter say in response? He was incensed at the suggestion that he, maybe these other guys, are going to back out on you, Lord. They're going to turn tail and run, but I'm not going to turn tail and run. And what did Jesus say? Peter, Peter. He didn't say they said Simon, Simon. He had that sympathetic approach that he demonstrated earlier in the book of Luke talking to Martha. Martha was wrong, so was Simon Peter. He said to him, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail, but when you return, strengthen the brother. Did Peter's faith fail? That's a sort of a trick question. It did temporarily, but he came back, didn't he? Why? Jesus was interceding for him just like he is for us. When we sin, what do we do? We go confess our sin to the Lord and we, he puts us back in the right relationship with him. He doesn't put us in the corner somewhere. If we're quick to humble ourselves before Him, He does that with our lives. But Jesus went on to say, you're going to deny me, Peter, before the rooster crows three times. You're going to deny me. And did Peter do that? But he was so much about himself. He was in the flesh, wasn't he? I'm not going to. What was he doing? He was comparing himself to the other guys. Now, they all went away too. We know that. So we see that, that example of Peter. And Peter, of course, after Pentecost, was a different man. He was not a perfect man any more than Paul was a perfect man. What about some people in the Bible who didn't have their own goals but the goal of God? Now, we, we could go on and on here. I'm going to use Abraham, who in Romans chapter 4 is given to us as the prototype of faith. Remember, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith comes from hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Abraham was such a man. At the age of 75, he packs up his wife, his nephew, his servants, all their belongings, and they go to only a place that God knows. He doesn't even know where he's going. He's just doing what the Lord said. Here was a man who had no plan of his own. God set the agenda for Abraham. Joseph, a descendant of him, 
Joseph would have been his, if I'm correct, I'm pretty sure I'm a great-grandchild of Abraham, a good boy. Maybe not very wise in what he told his brothers and the way in which he told his brothers about the dream he had, but nevertheless, a good boy sent off into exile. And the Bible says in Genesis 39, 3 and 39, twice in that chapter, the Word of God says this. It was chapter 39, 3 and 23. Excuse me, I was off on the second reference. He says this. The Bible says this. God prospered him when he was a slave in Potiphar's household. God prospered him when he was the warden of a prison, the prison of the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. He prospered him. He was where he wanted him to be. And he learned so much in that setting that prepared him for the job God was giving him that would have gone to anybody's head, but it didn't for Joseph because he had 13 long years to live a life that was a hard life. And he was not made bitter by it. To the contrary, he dealt with it. He, he fought it. You can read it now. Psalm 107, you can't help but see. He struggled with that, but he came out on the right side because he trusted the Lord and the Lord saw him through. We could go other places there. Moses, did Moses want to be the man who led Israel out of bondage? Absolutely not. But did he lead them out of bondage? Well, at least he led them through the 40 years of wandering and Joshua took over. In effect, he was leading them through Joshua because he discipled Joshua, didn't he? He invested in Joshua. He wasn't looking for any. What about David? Was David looking to become the hero of Israel by slaying the giant, Goliath? There's no indication of that. He's just doing what his daddy told him to do. He's eight, number eight on the totem pole. He's told to take some food to his big brothers who are in the army and give some to the king while he's at it. He gets there and he hears all that's going on. He sees the cowardice of the men. He says, I'm going to take that giant on. And he did. And the rest, as they say, is history. But David didn't seek to be king. But he was. In his own mind, he was just a shepherd. That's, that's who he was. He was a great shepherd. Shepherd of the whole nation. We need that kind of leadership in El Paso. We need that kind of leadership in the state and in the nation. God, please raise up somebody. It would be an incredible miracle. I don't think it's beyond God, but sometimes I wonder, you know. We get a godly person who's not ashamed of the Lord. Someone like a George Washington Carver who was brilliant because he trusted God and brilliant in character and in intellect and achievement and all that. But David says this in Psalm 143.10, he says, Teach me your will, O God, that I may walk in your truth. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. That's humble, isn't it? He knew he couldn't do it on his own. So he appealed to God. And God did it. Thank you, Lord. Daniel, wonderful story. Called in to interpret a dream. He had to tell what the dream was, then interpret it. Remember that? He did both. But when Nebuchadnezzar said to him, I've been told that you can interpret this dream. He said, no, sir, I can't. But I know one who can. It's the Lord God, Jehovah who can do it. And so what we see here, none of these people whom I've mentioned with the exception of Moses could be classified as a priest or a prophet. None of them. They were laymen. Look, laymen, rise up and be the church of God. This is what God is calling us to in this era, this next year. We don't know what will happen in the next year. But I do know what the Lord wants in any era in the history of the church of Jesus Christ is that all the people understand who they are in Christ and humble themselves and say, Lord, use me. I don't know why you would want to, but use me, please, Lord. That should be our heart going into this year. The means of achieving this goal, no boasting. 
Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. Those are things we boast in, right? Let him boast, boast in this, that he understands and catch this, knows me. This is the goal, knowing him. How do we know God? We know him through Jesus Christ. We know him as he speaks to us in his word. We sit at his feet. We listen to him as he speaks to us. In the few moments I have left, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Job. Job chapter 22. Job 22, 21 and 22. Let me read these and comment on them. The English Standard Version, I'll read it first. It's not as literal as the New American Standard, but it gives us a little different slant. It doesn't in any way contradict the New American Standard. The New English Version, Standard Version says, Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from His mouth and lay up His words in your heart. Now let's see what the NASB says. It says, Yield now. And the word yield actually means know intimately. That's awesome, isn't it? Know intimately now. And who would we know intimately? Who is that which we are called to know intimately? God. Do you know you can know God intimately? You, if you know Christ, have that capacity and God wants that for you. Look at verse 22. Please, there's a pleading. Please receive instruction from His mouth. That's God's mouth. And establish His words. The word establish means plant His words in your heart. The psalmist says, I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So we're to agree with God, receive instruction from God, plant His words in our heart. This means we have to make a priority of knowing God. It is the one goal that legitimizes all other goals. Now you can't say, I'm going to do this one, Lord, then I'm going to have my own goals. No. You do that one, and then He will arrange goals that are His goals for your life. And you will be successful. Not in the world's eyes, necessarily. And who wants the plaudits of the world anyway? But in the Lord's eyes you will, and your life will count not just for now, but forever. Don't you want your life to matter forever? It will, if you'll do what the Scripture says. So we are to yield, it says now, get on intimate terms with Jesus, and you will be at peace. I go to Isaiah 48 for a moment. We're going to look at verses 17 through 19. Isaiah 48, 17 through 19 say this. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit. That sounds like success, doesn't it? And, we, you know, so many Christian teachers today are just falling over each other trying to outdo the others by telling you how to be successful in life. Well, it's not rocket science. It's in the Word of God. It's not do this, do this, do this, do this. It's pretty clear. Know God. Know God. Know Jesus. And how do we get to know Him? In the pages of Scripture. And He will guide us. He goes on to say, not only I'm the one who teaches you to profit, but I'm the one who leads you in the way you should go. The psalmist David says in Psalm 86, 11, he says, unite my heart to fear your name. Teach me your way, O Lord, he says. 
that I may walk in it. And then Psalm 32, 8, I, God says, I will instruct you. Listen carefully. I will teach you. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The Lord wants to be our leader. This is why I'm sure Jesus ends His call to be His disciple by the command, follow me. In order to follow someone, I have to watch that person. Otherwise, I'm going to get lost. Follow me. Follow me. Keep your eyes on me. And then verse 18, if only, and this is a lament, and the background of this is Israel has been in exile in Babylon, and they're there because they had not sought the Lord to know the Lord in hundreds of years. He says, if only you had paid attention to my commandments. Your well-being, it's the word shalom, or in the word family, would be would have been like a river. Your righteousness like the waves of the sea. You want peace? Don't you want peace going into the new year? Job 22, 21. Agree with Him and you will have peace. I want peace this year, don't you? I'm not talking about no conflict outside, but I want internal peace. And it's mine and it's yours if we know Christ we have to make a decision, Lord, I want you more even than the peace you're going to give me when I get to know you. I want to know you, Lord. I want to give you control of my life. And my righteousness will be like the waves of the sea. Don't you like to go to the ocean? It's just so soothing, isn't it? Relaxing, those waves just keep coming in. That's the kind of righteousness we will have. In 19, your descendants would have been like the sand, your offspring like its grains. Their names would never be cut off or destroyed from my presence. Now I know as a parent, a grandparent, I love my children so much, too much probably. I want them to know the Lord. I want them to know this peace. And it can begin with you and with me to set the pace for our families. How about you? Are you committed in your mind, in your heart, in your will to follow Jesus this way? I hope it's true. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for this time of year when we are more apt to consider change. And we know we can't change ourselves. We know you're the great change artist. And it comes when we hear your voice and we respond and we repent of our self-centeredness, our lack of time alone with you. And we ask you, Father, to help us to be all you want us to be. And we know that requires that we plant your word in our heart. Give us the desire, the hunger for your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.